Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 214. On today's show, we talk about a Mayan ballgame carving, Egyptian mummy tags, and a Hopewell site in Ohio. Let's dig a little deeper, but not into a mound, into the ground. (laughs) Welcome to the Archaeology Show. How's it going? Good. In Arizona for the week, so it's been good. Yeah, we're back in the country. Yeah. Yep. The United States country. The United States country. Because Mexico is also a country. <laughs> also a country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just kind of hanging around Arizona, been in the Grand Canyon area, doing some beautiful hiking. So, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, it's been really fun. So, we are going to do some news articles today, mm-hmm. and we're kind of all over the board with these things. Yeah, we are. <laughs> there's no real theme or anything like that. Nope, just some cool stuff that we saw in the news. Yeah, yeah. So, the first one here is from Archaeology Magazine, and it's called Intact Ball Game Carving Discovered at Chichen Itza. Mm. And we've been to Chichen Itza. We sure have. Yeah, and we saw the ball court there. We did. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about ball courts a little bit later. I want to talk about the article first, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of define that. Yeah. For now, though, archaeologist Lizbeth Beatriz Mendesuti Perez. That's wow. a lot of names. It is. <laughs> Found the 13-inch diameter, 85-pound stone marker. Wow. Big. Yeah. And heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's carved with images of a ball and two players surrounded by glyphic text, so the my, typical Mayan glyphs. Yeah. Yeah, her and her team think it could have been affixed to an arch at the entrance to the Casa Colorada architectural complex at Chichen Itza Mm -hmm. and dates to around 8900. The player on the left wears a feathered headdress and a sash with flower-shaped adornment that looks like a water lily. So pretty. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the other one's got protective gear, which I thought was interesting, and a headdress that's known in the Chichen Itza area as a snake turban. Mm. I'm like, that sounds probably like real snakes were used back then so basically we've got two players in uniform kind of on this thing yes (laughs) at least in two different garments so maybe uniforms yeah i don't know if it was affixed to like an arch saying hey here's a ball court Uh i think it was a trading card an 85 pound 85 pound trading card yeah yeah totally yeah there you go collect (laughs) collect all 58 oh my god you heard it here first (laughs) (laughs) anyway well, if it was a trading card, you could collect all 58, probably all hundreds, because there's ball games all over the place. Yeah. In this area, all the way down Guatemala. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just everywhere. Yeah. The ball game itself was played on a large stone court and involved players knocking around a rubber ball using their hips. Which sounds completely ridiculous. Yeah. And it, not not to be mean, but it looks a little bit ridiculous too. Like when you're looking at the video of it, like you're kind of throwing your hips out to like hip check a ball <laughs> it's yeah, crazy there's a video we'll talk about in a little bit of people yeah. playing it but it's, it's had a uh and that's in the show notes so if you want to watch that yeah. there's a youtube video in the show notes but we'll talk about that in a second um the earliest date that 
these ball courts have been dated to is about 1650 BCE. Mm-hmm. And it's been around for, I mean, forever. Yeah. They I mean, call it the oldest continuously played sport in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's because people have continued to play it. Mm-hmm. The game has another name. We always call it the ball game when you hear about the Mayan, it, like a ball like court. The Mayan ball game. Yeah. yeah. But its actual name is Ulama. Ulama. Yeah. Ulama. Okay. So it was a focal point of Mayan cities, like just about every city had one. Mm-hmm. And its style and size and just adornments were a representation of wealth and power for that city. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of like how sports arenas are today a little bit, right? <sighs> yeah. Like, I mean, I guess. The bigger, fancier sports arenas are in yeah. the bigger fancier cities a lot of the time so yeah. yeah what we know of the history of the game comes from i'm gonna say a document called the poopal vuh i can't I, I, I can never pronounce that thing right yeah it's the oldest recounting of mind mythology and history and it goes back centuries it was actually maintained orally forever mm, yeah. right until 1550 when the spanish dominican friar francisco Jimenez wrote it down in the language of Kaichi. Mm. Kaichi. I don't know how you pronounce it. And a parallel column in Spanish. Oh, so, so he had the translation. Yeah. So he yeah. wrote this whole thing down, learned the language, and mm-hmm. then translated it into Spanish. There's a whole story with that document and, and what its history is. It, mm-hmm. it basically changed hands a few times after he died. And then it actually kind of got lost to time mm. in a collection. It wasn't lost officially, but like nobody really knew what it was, it was and where like it was. It was buried in a collection. Yeah. yeah. And then somebody else pulled it out and and then it was, you know, a couple other people found it and then somebody back like in the last century actually translated it again into English and published it a few times and it mm-hmm. was published around the world and then kind of came out and it was this just really amazing history of that whole area. Yeah, it's like yeah. kind of like the Rosetta Stone I mean, a little of bit. the Americas, but not really because we knew the language already, but it, mm-hmm. to have it be the parallel, the two languages together is, is yeah. very, very unique, I think. Yeah. This game, as I mentioned before, when Rachel mentioned the video, has seen a resurgence, uh, specifically in the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Mm-hmm. And it's been branching out. That's the, cool. In the video, you can see the guy who's kind of been the leading force behind it in the last five, six years. He's got this whole thing. There's a there's a Facebook page, which I link to here, that you can go to for the league that they've basically got around this. But there's men and women playing it. There's actually three different versions of the game that they play. Okay. And I don't know if that's historically accurate or not, because all the accounts I saw said that you do actually play it by uh, hitting it only with your hips. The mm-hmm. ball is thrown into the court. And then you hit it with your hips. You might say, well, sure, if the ball's like in the air and people do like hip check the ball from the air. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the ball in a second. But when it's on the ground and rolling, I mean, they literally just like throw their 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 like hips and their waist <laughs> to the ground. And a lot of times they're they're it's imagine like like a yoga pose or like something like that where you've got your hands down behind you and then your feet down in front of you with your legs bent but your and your hip is kind of supported like you're just like bringing it up oh i see yeah and yeah. then you're just like hip checking the ball or sometimes you're just throwing yourself into it yeah and then hitting it with your hips that's insane i know you really have to rely on your team members because you need some recovery time to just like get back up yeah you know it's well, not like and- you can it's, I can't imagine that if you're trying to get the ball off the ground, you can get it very far or very high. Right. So you need somebody ready to 
well, keep here's, it going. Here's the thing. It goes out of bounds a lot. And oh, when it okay. goes out of bounds, you throw, you throw it back in. Okay. So it does spend a fair amount of time in the air because people are really good at this and they might hit it, you know, off their hips from an, from an air shot uh-huh. and then just kind of go back and forth a couple of times in volleys, you know, uh-huh. until it hits the ground and then they're trying it's, to score. And, and what are they trying to score? Is it just like a, a zone at the end? The scoring rules are so complicated okay. that it takes years to learn them okay. and master them. Yeah. <laughs> even to today, they've, they've refined a lot of the rules to make it a little simpler. Okay. But like the scoring rules in the, in back in the day were ridiculous. Okay. And it said it was just, it was not, in fact, there's a, there's like a zone or a, I didn't really understand it. There's like a zone or some kind of time frame or something during the game where like if you do something wrong, you could lose all your points, but the game could actually take days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, nowadays they cap it at a few hours, but it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Now these balls are actually, they were made of like liquefied latex that you can find down in the peninsula there, uh, down in Mexico and all around mm-hmm. that area. And it naturally, took, yeah, yeah, wow, both from like rubber trees. Oh yeah, yeah right, it's rubber, right, basically. Yeah. Um, so they they would put this thing together, and it, it involved all these folding and and creating, and it really took a skilled craftsman to create this thing. Mm-hmm. And these balls could be anywhere from like a softball size up to like a soccer ball size, and weigh anywhere from a pound to like ten pounds. That's and you're insane. hitting these with your hips, right? <laughs> Talk about bruising. I know. And they're still oh using those kinds of balls today in the modern game. And they said because of the amount of latex and the skill and difficulty in making them, it could cost up to $1,000 to oh make that gosh. ball. Wow. Yeah. So it's just, it's crazy. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they wrap themselves in, uh, I guess, like a sash and kind of things. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet they're wearing like some padding on their hips too. I don't know if that's allowed or yeah. not. But I mean, they're hitting these things really hard. Yeah. And that is a hit. Yeah. Coming at you. Yeah. That would be bruising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, anyway, that's pretty much it. We always say Maya ball games, but uh-huh. it really took place all over that peninsula and like yeah. I said, all the way down to Guatemala and you know, these were all in the same time frame and in the highlands and the lowlands and it was just known throughout the land. A little bit of history of the game too is there were two gods that were essentially playing around and and they had an argument mm-hmm. and to settle the argument they played this game and that that was kind of how the that's game that's like the birth of the game yeah and yeah. it was supposed to be like this battle between light and dark as well and it was this whole not necessarily just a game that people saw as a spectator sport but it really had ritualistic meaning mm-hmm. you know like who wins and who loses and oh okay yeah there's a lot of stuff around there about how the winning team would be like sacrificed and killed yeah. or the losing team would be yeah you, you know one that. of the two but there's a lot of variation in that count as well. Mm-hmm. But either way, it was really important to the people of the city and town that they lived in. And it was seen as as something, you know, very special and a little bit ritualistic. Hmm. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, also ritualistic is making mummies. But <laughs> and we've talked about mummies before, but on this next article on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about a cool way that we're using things associated with the mummies to look at and reconstruct the climate of the ancient Mediterranean. Back in a minute. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back to episode 214 of the Archaeology Show. And now we're going to talk about wooden tags. <laughs> I imagine these is like, yeah. tote, like death toe tags, but probably not. I know. I yeah. know. That was the first thing I thought when I was reading this, too. I was like, oh, this is like the Egyptian version of a toe tag. It's yeah. like a little bit sad. I mean, it really is. But also functional, right? right. Like you, sure. you kind of you need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> So this article is called Mummies Provide the Key to Reconstruct the Climate of the Ancient Mediterranean. And it was published in... Fizz.org. In Fizz.org. Yep. So Egyptian mummies would have had wooden tags associated with them after the person had passed away and they were sent to the embalmers, basically, as a way of identifying who this person was, right? Yeah, because... It wasn't just pharaohs and important people that were made into mummies and embalmed. It right. was just their practice of burial. Right. Like a yeah. lot of people were. Any yeah. Anybody could have been. And yeah. and once the person is, you know, all wrapped up in bandages and the embalming process has happened or whatever, then you don't want the embalmer to mix up who goes to who and <laughs> right. like which body is which and stuff like that. So it kind of is a dual purpose, like identify who it is when you send it to the embalmer and then mm -hmm. after they've been all wrapped up and it's just a, a mummy that you can't identify anymore it also is an identifying marker so that's what they were used for yeah they would have had the names of the deceased on these tags plus the names of their parents and sometimes a little religious message just mm -hmm. some you know some information on there to say yeah. hey you know this is joe farrow and <laughs> you know he's, yeah. his parents are these and and he was a cool guy so yeah they gave a couple examples in the article and the first one is <laughs> Picris, the defunct son of Bessus and Senpnauth. I don't know if I said that last one right. So, as always, excuse our terrible pronunciations. But that one, I'm like, the defunct son? Yeah. Like, because defunct. he's dead, so he's defunct? Or was he defunct before he died? And they were just reluctantly claiming <laughs> him? I don't know. But poor Picris. Yeah. <laughs> Picris. Picris. Yeah. yeah. Another was, let's see, Sempetesi, daughter of Penahib. Yeah. yeah. So again, just they could be very simple. Yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. these are different names, man. I know they're they're tough to pronounce. <laughs> I have always thought it was such a beautiful language, though. Like, mm -hmm. or maybe not beautiful, but the way the sounds flow together are just really cool. So anyway. Yeah. So. We have these wooden tags, right? And what can you do with wood? <laughs> you can do lots of stuff with You wood. can date the tree rings. Yep. So they're kind of looking at other ways to use these tags to find out information about the climate and the area of the mummies that they were found with. Mm -hmm. There's a group of Geneva-based researchers that want to see if climate fluctuations might have contributed to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Like we always say, but they want to have like actual physical evidence of that. I think it's known mm -hmm. or it's always been said that that was part of it, but they're looking for the actual hard evidence. And they're, so they're specifically looking at the time period when Egypt was governed by Rome. 
Yeah, so these rings we're talking about, I mean, these are, when you look at the article, these are like flat pieces of wood, like a paddle mm-hmm. almost, and not very big. They they, no. they don't look like they're that big at all. Maybe a few inches long and a few inches wide and thin. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like a wooden tag that you yeah. would imagine, it's right? exactly like a paper tag, but yeah. out of wood instead of paper. But like any piece of wood, including maybe even a table or something that's sitting in your home, you can see the, the grain in the wood, they call it, you know, mm-hmm. when you say, oh, look at how beautiful that is. Mm-hmm. Those are the rings that were created when the tree was made. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. When the tree was growing, I mm-hmm. guess. And so you can you can see those rings and the thicknesses of those rings, even on polished cut pieces of wood. Yeah. You, you still know? see those concentric yeah. lines, which represent the rings. Right. Right. Now, when we do this tree ring dating, this is called dendrochronology. Mm-hmm. And why it's not called arbor chronology, I couldn't tell you, but it's called dendrochronology. Not at all. <laughs> I can't remember why it's called that. Yeah. But either way, chronology, obviously dating, time, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, they can't date them directly, but when they look at the thickness of the rings compared with the thickness of the rings around them, it can indicate good and bad years from just that analysis. Mm-hmm. For example, good years are indicated by broad rings or wider rings, indicating that the tree grew more during that year. Yep. And skinnier wings can be evidence of years of drought. Right. You know, because they're, you know, they didn't grow as constricted. Much. Yeah. 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 Now, with tender chronology, you can't just look at these and say, oh, well, this represents, you know, 1292. You yeah. just don't know that, right? right. So you have to have something else to align your dendrochronological time frame, mm-hmm. right? So one of the ways they could do that is radiocarbon dating, but they're trying to resist that because they'd have to cut pieces up, cut pieces away from it, and mm-hmm. they don't want to do that to any of these. So they're trying to figure out other ways to do it. And that could be something along the lines of identifying somebody on one of these tablets or mm-hmm. one of these things and, and really using some other resource where they're mentioned somewhere else with an actual date, and mm-hmm. then they can start aligning these, but, you know. Yeah, like what they're doing right now is that, they they're taking all these individual samples that they have and they want to kind of just get the spread right yeah. so they're and they want they want different tree species because different tree species have different responses to different climate things mm-hmm. you know and then you've always you're always going to have outliers where there's individuals that just had a different response to something for some reason or maybe they had an individual stress that happened to that tree specifically so yeah. so basically they just want to like create a bigger picture and and they need a, a big sample to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fortunately, there's thousands of these tags in museums all across the world, basically. Yeah, yeah there's lots of them. Yeah. One of the researchers, Francois Blondel, has analyzed a group of about 300 of these tags. Yeah. And what he's trying to do is, again, identify where the tree ring sequences overlap with one another. So yeah. if he sees a, it's almost like a barcode. Yeah. You know, he's looking at these things and saying, where does this plank match up with this plank yeah you know so then i can say all these are together yeah you know? and in my head he's got like a pile of them like laid out in front of him and he's going and like moving around but it's actually not quite like that they can take these images of them and then use the images to line them up probably using computer programs and stuff too to like sort of analyze the the rings and then figure out this sequence and the overlapping and see which match which and start to create this climate picture yeah and, and they have an outline, basically, that starts with, like, you know, a few good years here. And then they have a succession of droughts. And like you said, there's no years assigned to these yet. Yeah. So that's going to be the next step is to figure that out. Yeah. They're hoping through analysis to find, like I said before, something with a date on it mm-hmm. or something not with a date on it necessarily, but that is datable. Yeah. Through context. But there could be an actual date on it, though, because I mean, these be. are these are inscribed. Right. So like yeah. there, there's this hope, I think, in the back of their minds that they're going to pull out a tag that has like, I don't know, 
Imhotep, born right. <laughs> born this year, died this year or something mm-hmm. like that. And I mean, I don't know how likely it is. And also when you have a written date like that, it's you kind of have to take things with a grain of salt too because it's like human. So yeah. how how much can you trust what's written down or whatever? But mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're hoping for that to happen because, yeah, like you said, the next step is to do radiocarbon dating, uh, carbon-14. And it's just... When they're trying to get, they want like a year to year map of the climate of this area to see how it might have impacted the fall of Rome, essentially. And they need that to be specific and detailed to the year. So the error range for carbon-14 is just too big for Mm -hmm. them to really feel comfortable with the dates that they're going to get from that. Probably. That's what they're concerned about. So they're hoping for something else to be at least corroborating, probably. Yeah. Plus the destructive nature of Plus radiocarbon is, yeah. dating. Yes, of course. That yeah. that's definitely a problem too. So yeah, they don't want to do that. I'm not sure how many of the museums that own the pieces, the specimens <laughs> that they're studying, are gonna give them permission to, you know, right. destroy them. So I mean yeah, just that take a little piece off the back. <laughs> yeah. I, do you know how big of a piece you need to do? It's microscopic. It's oh really? Little. Yeah. If it's very tiny, I mean they might be able to get permission. Yeah, it's but still destructive though. It is still destructive, yeah, it's I not know. A lot. Yeah. So, I mean, you're literally counting atoms. So, you know, that's, it's really small. Yeah. And, and to get a date and they mentioned this in the article, but to get a date that they can start trusting a little bit, they'd have to do it to like a bunch of, Mm -hmm. a bunch of these tags from the same like section where the rings overlap so that they can get, you know, 10 different tags that give the same date and then they can feel comfortable saying, okay, our time period starts right here with this date. But yeah. They don't have that yet. So they're still working on it. Yeah. Unfortunately, the ones we do know dates for, like the big pharaohs and stuff like that, they didn't have to have a tag on them no, when they were sent to the embalmers. No. Everybody they, knew who they were. They probably had a personal embalmer that was just like on standby <laughs> yeah. for the moment that they died and like didn't work with other mummies and right. wouldn't have had to wait in line for, <laughs> for embalming. Like rich people that have like a panic button so they can push it so they their, their cryogenicist can show up immediately and freeze <laughs> right. their head. Oh, right, yeah. totally. Yeah, that's modern embalming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So, <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for that one. Pretty cool. It, interesting to see what they come out with that because you know we can tell a lot from these remains, but I never really thought about looking at climatological yeah. you know, changes. But yeah. you know, there's often wood found in these drier environments mm-hmm. and sometimes you can tell stuff, but you just don't have enough. But I didn't really realize how many of these things there were. Yeah. And I never really heard of them before. So that's really cool. This like common almost household yeah. item that everybody would have had to use at least once in their life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting use of that artifact. All right. Well now we're gonna go over to Ohio, another place that you and I have worked. Yeah. And near probably where this happened, where we're going to talk about, because we worked around some some Hopewell mm-hmm. stuff, but we'll get into that and this CRM project on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to episode 214 of the Archaeology Show. And we're talking news articles. And this one is a cool CRM project Mm -hmm. from Newark, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, it caught my eye because... You know, we've worked in Ohio. I don't know if we've mm-hmm. ever mentioned that before on the podcast, but we did a, you know, a phase two many, many, many years ago in yeah. Ohio. So we kind of worked in this area. Yeah. So the article is called Archaeologists Discover 2000 Year Old Dwelling Site of Hopewell Native Americans in Ohio. And it took me a second to kind of track down this article. It's written by Jack Wolf of the reportingproject.org, but it's one of those kind of things where it can be shared around. So I found mm-hmm. it on USA Today, and I think it was on like uh, Heritage Daily and maybe a couple other places. Yeah. So you can find it in a lot of different places, but the original one is the reportingproject.org. And I cannot even say how much I love this article. <laughs> it is the most realistic reporting of a CRM project, except for one detail, which we can talk about later on, but it's the most realistic <laughs> reporting of a CRM project that I've ever read. And it's not boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like everything about it was so well done. Yeah. It really went into some detail on, you know, different techniques and, yeah. and stuff like that. It was weird to hear all of the stuff we're used to hearing as far as measurements in feet in and inches. Feet. I know. I thought that was so weird too. Yeah. I converted some of it to meters like without even thinking about it yeah. when I was writing the notes for right. the article. But yeah. Anyway, this all happened because of a, a bridge, yeah. basically a 190 year old bridge in New- Newark, Ohio, that was un- abruptly and unexpectedly closed uh, a few months ago yeah. because it was deemed unsafe. Yeah. And this is actually the one thing that is hard for me to put into context. I don't know why they talk about that in this article because the work on this site actually started in 2018 and it was in anticipation of replacing that bridge because they knew that it needed to be replaced and they actually created a whole new like traffic path for the bridge and it wasn't going to go over the old bridge location anymore. So this site is actually over and you can see it on the map if you kind of, well, they don't actually call it out in the map in the article. You have to kind of like look at their pictures and yeah. look at where they say it's supposed to be. And then you can kind of see where it's supposed to be like right near the roundabout that they're putting mm-hmm. in is it's right. It's right in there. But the closure of the bridge has nothing to do with that. It's just there. They happen to happen in conjunction with each other, I guess. So Yeah. And, and the reason they started working on this a few years ago, I mean, these construction projects especially municipal ones i mean they take forever to get in the to get planning under they do, yeah you know so in order for them to even put together an environmental study to get permission to even create a new bridge yeah they had to do archaeology yeah it's just one of the things that has to be yeah. done yeah i so, mean it's national historic yeah. preservation act like it was it, it's just required that they do this so yeah. So they've been working on it for a couple of years now, but they are wrapping up excavations. It mm-hmm. looks, it sounds like excavations are done and they're in the analysis and writing and reporting portion of it. So, right. but it is good timing because they had to close that other bridge because it was just to the point of being unsafe. I guess there's right. a lot more traffic going over it now, these huge trucks. So they just, they're putting a temporary bridge over the top of it so that they can keep using it until the new bridge is ready. But yeah, that's, that's where they're they're right. at with that. And the CRM company doing the work is Lahan and Associates out of Columbus. 
Mm-hmm. And they're the, they're working in Newark, Ohio, which is where this is going on. Yeah, and this is all north of where we worked. We worked out of well, it wasn't out of Cincinnati, but it was just to the east of Cincinnati. Yeah. And Columbus is more up and to the up right in, of Cincinnati. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Northeast. <laughs> yeah. But, so uh, more in the middle of the state. Yeah. But the Ohio Mound Builders, mm-hmm. right? That's a, I've got a book called The Ohio Mound Builders. Yeah. I bought when we worked in Ohio, and. Yeah. Just the mounds that are there. It's not just Ohio, but it's largely Ohio. Yeah. You know, it obviously surround it goes into the surrounding areas, mm-hmm. but these earthen mounds and these earthen earthworks, like the Newark earthworks, which are right outside, right near here, mm-hmm. were again part of the Hopewell culture. And they are some of the largest earthworks in the world. Yeah. They're you know? huge yeah. and extensive for it's, sure. It's amazing. And it's yeah. just Right now, they just kind of look like some of them have shapes to them, like yeah. there's Serpent Mound, you know, down yeah. in Ohio and and some other famous ones. And, you know, sometimes they have these intricate shapes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just mounds. and mm-hmm. But they're they're grown over with grass and vegetation and all that stuff and could be hard to see in certain circumstances. But because there's been such extensive farming and plowing, uh, plowing and, yeah. and just living here for the last three or four hundred years by modern Europeans, European descendants, mm-hmm. the Native Americans really didn't do any of that. You know, they, I don't know if they wouldn't have intentionally destroyed any of this stuff or even right. known what it was for. Right. But they had no reason to do that because they didn't really practice agriculture in that way. Yeah. So when agriculture came to the new world, they started destroying mounds pretty yeah, heavily. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I mean, they saw them as a problem, right? Like this They're mound in the, in the middle of their field and they yeah. needed to plant. That's yep. why you'll sometimes see like planted fields and then this big mound yeah. up out of the middle of it because, you know, back in the day, they, they just wanted them out of their way or they moved, they worked around them. Yeah. They went through all the phases of archaeology on this too. So during the initial testing, they dug test pits and, and we, what we call delineating the yeah. positive ones uh, to narrow in on the site. Yeah. And, you know, delineation, sometimes it depends on where you work and how you do it, but sometimes we call it like a cruciform delineation yeah. where you, we call them shovel tests a lot. Some people call them shovel pits or shovel, yeah. te- shovel test pits, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. But you're basically digging on a grid, a big grid, mm-hmm. and... If you find a positive one, you basically cut the distance yeah. mm-hmm. between the positive one and your next negative one in all four directions. Mm-hmm. And then if one of those is positive, then you cut the distance again. You don't go in, you don't keep cutting the distance. You just do it maybe once or twice until mm-hmm. you you really nail down, okay, there's something here. Yeah. And on the next phase, that's one of your areas of focus. Yeah. You're trying to find the edges of whatever the concentration yeah. of artifacts is that you found, or if you get real lucky i'm not sure lucky is the right word actually but if you get lucky and find a feature mm-hmm. hopefully you don't go through the middle of it and completely destroy it because it could be that, hard to see in a shovel test it would be hard to see in a shovel test yeah. but yeah but the this article i i swear they did such a good job of it they talked mm-hmm. about how they they were at i think 50 foot intervals i'm not sure what that would be in meters right yeah and then they they dropped it to 25 when they yeah. were trying to narrow in on the site Probably concentration and the edges, something like that yeah, yeah. So, so really really neat so anyway, they got to the point where they found the primary site that was significant that they needed to do excavation work on. Mm-hmm. And it's located in the front yard of a house <laughs> that is going away, obviously, <laughs> mm-hmm. at the intersection of Reddington Road and Thornwood Drive. And that's just west of the old bridge. And in the article that we linked to, if you look at the map, you can find Reddington Road and you can find Thornwood Drive. It's more of a curve right now. It's not really an intersection, mm-hmm. but that you can kind of see on the map, there's like a white house there. There's two two white house buildings, I think, yeah. and it's like right in that area. And you can you can see it on the aerial, even though it's not really like pointed out. But it's, it's actually, is it shocking to you how much information they're releasing about this? 
Uh, not really, because this should all be public information. It should be. It should be for sure. Yeah. But but serum companies are often so secretive. Well, and I was a because they have to be because they have contracts and non-disclosure and blah, 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 blah. I know they have to be. But, but that's more for private projects. For yeah, these public works projects. I guess that's what it is. This it's, has been in the planning phase. Yeah. They would have had to have released the, you know, not necessarily the details of the report, but the mm-hmm. fact that stuff was found and yeah. the mitigation is going to cost this much. It's got to be voted on. Yeah. You know, the plans go right through a couple of houses. They had to buy those. Yeah. yeah. That takes They've got time. like X's on them and the, <laughs> yeah. on the aerial image. So yeah, like, they, yeah. That's under imminent domain. It's yeah. the, the greater good is going to be served by having this new bridge and this road re- realignment. Yeah. Therefore, your house is yeah. going to be sacrificed. Yeah, totally. So, but they have to offer you fair market value for the property. Of course. You know, yeah. You can't yeah. gouge them. Yeah. But they have to offer you that kind of money. Yeah. But then they got to deal with the house itself too, which could be, you know, depending on how old it is, it might have some it asbestos, could have asbestos, you know, yeah. lead paint. Yeah. You know, who knows, right? So there's all kinds of things that have to be taken into account. Yeah, for sure. But one of the studies that they did to help find things, and archaeologists like to not dig in the ground if they don't have to because yeah, it's expensive, it's it destructive, and it's just like takes a long time. So if yeah. we can use some subsurface, non-destructive archaeology, a lot of that is getting better and better and better it through is. time. It's and great. No, like not quite no longer the days of yeah. empty test units, but like right. I've dug a lot of empty test units I know. in my uh-huh. archaeology days and boy, they just like break your soul a little right. bit. So now, All subsurface <laughs> techniques fall under the heading of geophysical survey. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I took a really cool class with a really cool name in grad school called shallow geophysics mm-hmm. because you can get deep geophysics, which they use with mining. In fact, we used yeah. to do monitoring where they had these big trucks that would come out and then they would pound on the ground with yeah. one truck and then hundreds and hundreds of feet away, there were other monitoring and sensing equipment and they would drop these these things in all these directions and the reflections back from these poundings, they would be a mile under the earth right. and they could tell what was down there and basically That's map so all cool. the minerals. That is yeah. so cool. That's deep geophysics. Yeah. But Which you don't need to use with, with no. human you know, deposits. <laughs> well, some people would say that our history goes back way farther and we should be digging deeper, but that's we a whole other We're not argument. talking about those people, so <laughs> go on. <laughs> anyway, the geophysical survey they employed here was called, was using a magnetic gradiometer, and we typically call this magnetometry. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the Earth has a magnetic field. We know that. When that magnetic field hits certain types of minerals mm-hmm. and, and metal objects and high density objects, it alters the magnetic field in a way that can be sensed by a magnetic gradiometer, mm-hmm. right? And gradiometer is just a measuring tool, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So it's measuring fluctuations in the Earth's magnetic field. And it's yeah. very sensitive, very slight fluctuations. And it's just, you know, really detailed work. Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, I think what they were really wanting to use it for was to kind of try to help lead them in the direction of finding subsurface deposits like hearts. Yeah. Because that change in soil made by like basically burnt, burnt stuff, burnt soil, burnt stuff in the soil could be detected by using the magnetic gradiometer. Yeah. Hearts can be a a buildup of carbonized material just over sometimes many years. You're going to use the same spot if this is a, if this is a village or a hamlet Mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, they're going to use the same one over years and years and years. And they get, depending on the clay content of the soil too, which there's a lot of clay in the soil out here, it almost gets like a like a hardened yeah and then it's just hardened mm-hmm. hardened 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 mm-hmm. and this has a, a massive signature when yeah. you're trying to look for it i imagine it's quite obvious yeah. when when the preservation conditions are just right. right i think you could probably also see parts like this with like ground penetrating radar but i'm not really sure i think you probably can yeah, if it's yeah. a dense enough object yeah. for that 
So. I wonder what made them choose this method of over GPR. Right. They they don't go quite in I mean it's a great article, but it doesn't go quite into right. detail like that. But so yeah, they they had all this data from the phase one, basically they called mm-hmm. it. It was the data from the shovel tests and then the delineation of the site and then the magnetic gradiometry. And then they presented all of this information to the Ohio Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. the Licking County Historical Societies, and any affiliated Native American groups. And all of those people together, you know, there was a partnership and they made an excavation plan together, yeah. which sounds like they had a really good working relationship. At least this article makes it sound that way. Hopefully they did. <laughs> right. One of the things they did on this excavation was... What the article said is a new soil soil analysis method. I'll talk about that first, but Uh we'll talk about that in a second. But they took samples about every 10 feet, so three meters or so, a little over three meters. Yep. And they were measuring the phosphate levels. So they took these soil samples, sent them off, and then the phosphate levels were measured within these. Now, phosphate levels, elevated concentrations of phosphate equals human activity. Right. And I've read about this technique being used, I mean, for years now. Yeah. And largely in academic settings. I think that's why they said yeah. new is because it's not common for CRM right. to do this, but they did in this case. Well, and one of the reasons it wouldn't be common for CRM firms is, I mean, I mean, how often have we just found small expressions of human activity yeah. and not like long-term expressions? Because that's what you find with this, if uh-huh. you think you have some sort of village site that was a long-term occupation, not just like a seasonal one where they were there for one season uh-huh. and didn't ever come back, but long-term, long-term occupation, o- yeah. the byproducts of just humans living there, there's all kinds of things that do this. You could get really into that. We don't, we're not going to do that in this podcast, but it builds up these phosphate levels in the ground mm-hmm. where humans have lived. And we, again, we've known about that for a while. Yeah. Okay, cool. I I wasn't really sure what exactly yeah. or why the phosphate levels would indicate human activity, but it sounds mm-hmm. like it's just the stuff that people do causes the ele- the elevated it, levels. Yeah, so. I mean it has to do with the hards, the, yeah. the high concentration of animal bones that are that are eaten and uh-huh. processed and all those sorts of materials there and yeah. sometimes even burying your dead there, just all these things contribute all to it together. you know this yeah. whole thing. So Yes. Well, it's good that the results were conclusive that they had human activity because yeah. they were ready to move on to excavation from from that point. Yep. They excavated 24 one by one meter test units, which I'm pretty sure they said three <laughs> foot by three foot yeah. in the article. But like you can see it's it's textbook excavation in the yeah. in the images in the article. So they were definitely doing one by one meter units. And those units yielded pottery, oven fragments, and stone tools, including the kind of most coveted one, I guess, is the bladelet cores. Yeah. Bladelet cores are just... Well, cores essentially are the middle part of, say, a nodule of stone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, flint napping is the practice of taking flakes off of cores, Mm -hmm. basically, or or just source material if it's if it's already ready to go and then shaping that into something you're going to use mm-hmm. whether it's a something to scrape hides or an actual arrowhead or something like that or spear tip or you know dart point something like that we call them projectile points because you don't know what kind of projectile it is right well you usually do by its size but to encompass the whole realm of those things we call them projectile points yeah yeah but the bladelets are the the smaller blades that just come off these and bladelet cores are really cool because it looks like a cylinder essentially yeah because you've got the end of the core has been prepared and then the bottom of the core has been prepared. And then you're basically using, you know, pressure and hammering to take off these blades off the side all mm-hmm. the way around it. Yeah. These like long skinny things. Yeah. They look just like blades, just like yeah. what they call them. 
Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's super neat. And, yep. and the Hopewell culture in this area is known for using the small flint bladelets from a bladelet core. Mm-hmm. And they're, the material, the source material is mined from the Flint Ridge quarries, which are east of Newark. And yeah. Flint is chert, right? Yeah, it's so, basically a kind of chert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they found 23 unique features, including post hole stains, which indicates the presence of structures. And post hole stains are just a really common thing in this area yeah. that help identify that people were here for a longer period of time. Because mm-hmm. it's literally like you dig a hole for a post. Yeah. And we could see this in, you know, modern ranches where there's fence posts. Yeah. You know, sure. where their old wooden posts were replaced by metal posts or something like that. That where that old wooden post was, I mean, a lot of times they don't get to this point, but. If the post sits there for long enough and eventually just like degrades into nothing, mm-hmm. it leaves a mark on the soil. Yeah. It looks like dirt. It does. And just a darker dirt. Yeah. But it's essentially a post hole. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like the concentration of vegetation, which is basically what, you know, a yeah. tree a tree is, leaves a really dark, like perfectly circular in a lot of cases. Sometimes. Hole. Yeah. And we don't actually call them post holes when we find them. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a hole. Yeah. It's it's a post mold. Yes. It's a true. mold of yeah. the post. Yeah. It's, an, it's almost a cast of the post. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So it's kind of like how fossilization works. The bone's not there anymore, but there's a rock in its place that yeah. looks exactly like the bone. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it is, it's exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. So another type of feature that they found pretty commonly was the hearth, like we said. And what I thought was really cool about these is that some of them had associated earthen ovens Mm -hmm. and they would create these ovens by digging a hole, lining it with stones, and then you build a fire inside of it basically to sort of amplify that heat. Yeah. So I thought that was, that was one of the cooler things I'd heard of. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Yeah. I just want to know how somebody figured that out. They're like... They have like there's rocks in their fire pit and fire cracked rock, right? Yeah, well, and then they went and touched yeah. the rock. They're like, damn, that's hot. Oh, how oh, they hey. originally fit. Yeah. yeah, maybe we can use this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's put a whole bunch of them in there. Yeah, It'll just stay hot. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, the I, I'd never actually heard of this before, but they said the settlements in this area in the article are often referred to as hamlets. Maybe yeah. that's a local thing, but hamlet isn't like one of the common societal levels. It's just what they happen to call the the Hopewell small villages. Small villages, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. In this country, you hear about it in like Europe, I think. Sure. Like Hamlet is a pretty common term for mm-hmm. a small a small village. But yeah, that's what they're calling it. And it's really important to have this site and to excavate sites like this. I know it's not as like sexy as a mound site, you know, mm-hmm. but this is like how the everyday life of a Hopewell person would, would have been, you yeah. know, making, making stone ovens and cooking whatever they cooked and building structures with posts. These sites are, are so important. And when you start thinking about what you can learn about the, the life of a villager, it's, it's really right. cool too. It's kind of similar to our last article where you're looking at a whole bunch of examples of something and you're trying to overlap where they intersect. So mm-hmm. you find all these little hamlets, so to speak, and you intersect where these things have similarities, where they have differences. And you can even start to look at like regional differences. Yeah. You know, like the Hopewell yep. in this area did things a little bit different than the Hopewell yep. in this area. Yeah. You know, and with enough examples of this, you can start figuring that out. Yeah. You just can all of a sudden fill in yeah. this picture of who these people were and and what they did. But you, it's, you can't do it with just one. You need all of them, like you said. Yeah. So, yeah. There weren't any specific dates mentioned in the article, but there I'm sure there are. There, I'm uh, sure there yeah. will be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with that many hearts, they're, I'm easily going to be able to do sure. carbon 14. Well, and they so. found tools and all kinds of stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Hopewell culture generally dates to about 100 BCE to 500 CE, so about yeah. a 600-year span. Yeah. And again, they didn't really like go anywhere. It's just that's where the cultural definition of what became yeah. the Hopewell 
changed enough to where we could recognize it as something different around 100 BCE and then yeah. changed into something else around 500 CE. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure yeah. there's still technically descendants in the, oh, the native sure tribes today. Yeah. So, but, you know, we as scientists have to put labels on things just to make it easier to quantify what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So though that's the age range for Hopewell right now. <laughs> yeah, they're, as you said, done with excavation and doing analysis, which could take months, but We'll likely get some dates and some more information yeah. later. I'm pretty sure I've heard of Andy Sewell before, too, the archaeologist oh, yeah. in charge of this. Oh, I forgot to mention him earlier, yeah. but yeah, yeah. And if, if Andy's listening to this or anybody that happens to work <laughs> in Ohio that knows him, yeah. maybe you can come on and, and mention Ta- yeah. some other stuff about what was found and some of their techniques and maybe yeah. some stuff that wasn't published in the article. Yeah, because this article is super well written about like the methods and what yeah. they did and why they were doing it. But it is a little bit light on the actual artifacts and the actual like layout of the right. village and that kind of stuff. So getting some more detailed information there would be would be really cool. Yeah, I mean, they can share the maps now that that's all going to be basically dug up and a roundabout and bridge put in. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Just like a site we talked about that we worked on up in Washington, it was almost the exact same thing. It was, A yeah. roundabout was put in, but not for a bridge, but for a, a highway realignment. Yeah. Or a bypass, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, and they were definitely some houses that lost out on that little project they did but, but uh yeah. yeah found a lot of cool stuff because of that yep so all right well that's it for this episode we will be back next week with something else <laughs> <laughs> bye bye thanks for listening to the archaeology show feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Come.